You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 1 through 20 this morning. As I've already said uh, earlier, our emphasis will certainly be on verses 10 and 11. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And the same, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all of the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will, be, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the, angel, the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they heard and seen as it had been told them. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning, and we look to you, Father, to fill our hearts, O, o Father, with your glory. We look to you, Father, to open this passage up to our hearts, a passage that is familiar to most of us, probably all of us. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased to teach us and instruct us, guide us. Father, and we look to you in this hour, in the name of our Lord. Amen and amen. So I've said a couple of times the passage that we come to this morning is a passage that's very familiar to us, isn't it? And it's an astonishing passage. Uh, indeed, quite astonishing. But I fear this morning, I, I fear that perhaps maybe because of the familiarity, but for other reasons, I think I have about five reasons, I'll share with you that the astonishment of this passage uh, perhaps has dimmed 
Um, can we read this passage? Can we read it in such a way that maybe our minds drift off to something else as we read it? Can we read this passage and find ourselves really emotionally unmoved? Can we read this passage and maybe find some level of astonishment, but not really the level of astonishment this text warrants? If you're like me, the answer to all these questions are yes. And as I go down through a few possible reasons for this, let me, let me, let me just do a little housekeeping right now. I don't want to give anyone the impression that I'm standing up here pointing down you know, with that finger, like, you, 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 you. Everything I'm about to say, I apply to myself. And I'm going to be the first one. I'll lead us in the way. I'm going to be the first one to repent, the first one to confess. Sometimes I read this passage. I've preached on this passage, I don't know how many times. Sometimes I can read this passage and find my mind drifting off into somewhere else. So let me just get it started there. And I say these things, really not to make any light of this, to the contrary, uh, but I say these things uh, really just to inform you of the ethos in which I want to speak this morning. It's not an ethos of, you know, where you're, you're doing this from up here. No. No, it's more of an ethos where we're all kind of gathered together and we're looking at this and we say together of one another, we have this problem and we have this problem together. And it's not a small problem. It's actually quite significant. I think as I start... As I start opening it up, I think you'll agree with me. It's quite significant. So how, how is it that our level of astonishment to this text could dim? Well, I think familiarity might be one of the reasons, although I don't want to blame it on familiarity. But some of us have heard this passage every December, read to us when we were in the crib, uh, read to us at every stage of our lives. For how many years now we've heard this story? Uh, it's been, you know, over and over again. And by the way, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, okay? Uh, you know, I, I was thinking this through this morning, and I was thinking of Cody and some of our uh, young fathers here this morning. Uh, you know, when I make this point, I don't want to in any way um, discourage you from reading Luke chapter 2 to even Linus, who's, you know, in the, in the crib here. Uh, even though they can't understand it, read it to them. Read it to him. May he hear this every Lord's Day. May he hear this or every, every December um, for his entire life. But let's think this through. If we hear this every, every December through our lives, okay? Uh, we hear it when we don't even understand it. We hear as we begin to understand it. We hear it uh, as we start to maybe even be able to tell it into our own words. And then we hear it, then we read it for ourselves as we, as we grow and we find ourselves able to read and able to process these squiggly lines into words that make sense to us. And then we reach a point where now we're reading it to others. There, it is possible to have spent all this time with the text and to have never really been astonished by it in the first place. Especially when this particular text is read in isolation of the rest of Scripture. Because Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, does not teach us everything about God, does it? 
And if we read this text, and if this is the only text that we are familiar with in all of the Bible, then it should be no surprise that we're not astonished by this text. This text has to be understood within the context of the larger story of the Bible. Now, um, another reason why we might not find this so astonishing, and I think the chief and principal reason that we find this not so astonishing, is because of our diminishing of God. Reason with me for a moment. How can we not be astonished by this text and be removed from the charge of diminishing God? Of making God much smaller than He really is. Of making God much more common than He really is. Of making God much more ordinary than He is. I think we have to diminish God to some degree if we are to dim in our astonishment of this text. Does that make sense? But secondly, we have to dim in our perception of His holiness. God in His holiness. What is it that makes fallen sinners shudder in fear and terror as we're going to see in our text? What is it that makes fallen men and women shudder in fear in the presence of God. It is His perfect holiness. His abject holiness. Where angels, we're told these mighty angels, they have these six wings. With two wings, they cover their face. They cover their eyes before the presence of God. What is that? That is an illustration. We have these mighty, powerful, holy creatures who are attending to the immediate presence of God, they are furnished with these wings upon which they're able to actually cover their eyes from beholding the glory of God and the unapproachable light in which He dwells. And with two, they're able to cover their feet, which certainly is an illustration of creatureliness, of the fact that they are creatures. It's certainly an illustration of that. We have to diminish that. We have to diminish that a great deal in order for our astonishment of this text, in order for our hearts to dull. To stuff. We, have to do, we have to diminish His holiness. And if we have diminished, if we've diminished God's, uh, God's person, if we've diminished Him in His attributes, and we've diminished Him in His holiness, then it should be no surprise that we diminish heaven as well. We're going to diminish heaven. If we've diminished God and we've diminished His holiness, we're going to diminish heaven. How can we be removed from the charge of diminishing heaven if we can find ourselves hardly astonished at the fact that the Son of God has exited heaven, that the Son of God has come and united Himself perfectly and permanently with the human nature? in Christ Jesus, where we have heaven. You know, we speak in sp spatial languages, language when we speak of heaven. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. We speak of spatial language, but that's just merely a metaphor. It's moving from one realm into the next, from the realm of heaven into this realm of earth. The Son of God steps forth into time, space, and history and unites Himself with a human body. Heaven touches earth. One realm reaches out and touches the other realm for, for eternity. 
Now, what are the problems? If we diminish, if we diminish God, and we diminish His holiness, then we diminish heaven. And if we diminish heaven, then all of a sudden the world seems to be, it seems to sparkle all the greater, doesn't it? And instead of looking to heaven, instead of reaching for heaven, what do we do? We try to make heaven here. That's the only logical thing to do. We shouldn't be surprised by worldliness when we've discovered in our hearts. If we're diminishing God, we're diminishing His holiness, we're going to diminish heaven. If we've diminished heaven, then we're not going to look for it. We're not going to long for it the way we should. We're, we're not... We're, we're, we're not going to impatiently call, you know, oh Lord Jesus, come, oh Lord Jesus, come, oh Lord Jesus. No, instead, we're going to have a tendency to ignore Jesus and try to make heaven here on earth. That's exactly what we're going to do. So you're beginning to see the weight and the gravity of the problem. And furthermore, if we're diminishing God and we're diminishing His holiness, we will diminish heaven and we are going to find ourselves in in a less than perfect state of gratitude for what God has done. So we could add ingratitude to the list. If we can read this and our minds can drift off somewhere else, that is a gesture of ingratitude for what God has done, is it not? It's good. You see how all these things are related? They're like spokes on a wheel. You know, once that wheel starts turning in a direction, it takes all of those things with it. Say, boy, Rick, this is a wonderful Christmas sermon you got going on here. You just, you know, um, and and you know, it's going to get a little better. Okay, I'm not going to close in prayer now. Imagine if I did, though. Imagine if I closed in prayer now because there's nothing else to say. That would be to imagine. No Christmas. Because there is no Christ. That's a game changer, isn't it? That's really a game changer. Establishing that our hearts have a tendency to be dull, that our hearts are dull, establishing all of that. Let's work on that. Has God done anything about that? Absolutely, He's done something about that. He absolutely has done something about that. Notice, notice what the angel says to the shepherds. You know, as the angel appears to the shepherds, in verse 10, the angels say to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. Good news. Well, what is the good news? The good news is the gospel. The gospel means good news. Has God done something about this? Yes, He has done something about this. And what has He done about this? Well, He's done something quite marvelous about this. He's done something, he's done something amazing about this. And let me just speak for a moment about this dullness of heart. As we find ourselves convicted of dullness of heart, as we find ourselves, you know, as we say to ourselves, you know, I have, Lord, I've made you small. I've made you small, Lord. Some of us are sensitive, and this is really gonna this is really gonna irk at you. You know, Rick is right, I've made you small. I have diminished your holiness. I've diminished heaven. I've been chasing things in this world instead of chasing heaven. I've been chasing things in this world instead of chasing you. This is really where my heart is, it's somewhere else. Let, let me offer you a word of comfort about that. 
Isn't that not what the disciples who walked with Jesus for three years did over and over again? How about the two disciples? Luke will tell us about two disciples right after the crucifixion of Jesus. Two disciples making their way back home. And their hearts are downcast. Their faces are long. And, and suddenly this mysterious person comes up behind them and says, "What, well, fellas, what are you guys talking about? I'm like, well, haven't you heard? You must be the only one in Jerusalem that don't know what we're talking about. This Jesus who has been crucified, we thought he was the one who was to come. But our hopes, our hopes have been dashed. You realize the, the magnitude of the unbelief in these two disciples as they're walking to Emmaus. I'm pointing this to your attention because I want you to see God's disposition towards that. We have a tendency to think when we find ourselves in these states that God is some kind of, uh, some kind of you know, big ogre with a yardstick ready to crack us over the, over the top of the knuckles for this kind of thing. And if we're going to get over this, the first thing we have to understand is that God's disposition towards his children when we're in a state like this is not that way. What does Jesus do? He says, oh, you slow of heart to believe. And then what's he do? He comes right alongside with them and he shares what? The gospel. Here it's the angel saying to the shepherds, fear not. Fear not. Fear not. There's a lot of points this morning that could be drawn from our text. There are a lot of points this morning that could be drawn from our text. I'm only going to draw one. I originally thought I would draw two, but I think if I bring in a second one, it'll be too much, and I think it'll distract from it. We're just going to do one. We're just going to do one. And that is the amazing love that the Father has, that the God, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have for his children, for humanity. Now, when I say this, I say this, you know, as I was thinking this through, I was thinking, you know, the church has so abused the love of God that it has really become inconsequential. You know, the message that goes like this, you know, God loves you unconditionally, God loves you, and, you know, hey, don't worry about it, God loves you, he loves you unconditionally, he loves you, you know, all of that kind of nonsense, which is... Really absolute nonsense. Listen, the, the, the watching world, how do they take that? They take that in several different ways. One is kind of like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, as a musician, I can remember going out and I can remember playing gigs that went really well. And I was proud of those gigs. But I can also remember going out and playing gigs that went almost the complete opposite. And I was ashamed of them. And anyone who's been involved in playing music knows what I understand. They know what I'm trying to say. And when you have played a really awful gig and someone comes up to you and says, man, that was, that, was, that, was, that was just really good. That was just really good. Those words fall empty and flat because you know they're not true. Every human being alive knows enough about God to know that this whole idea Eh, you know, God loves you uh, uh, unconditionally, knows that there's something wrong with that statement. And it has rendered God's love towards humanity as inconsequential. 
And the message is often taken this way. When fallen sinners hear that, that God loves you unconditionally, no matter what, what's that mean? Well, that means we can continue to live the way we're living. It means we don't have to make any changes. In fact, to the contrary, what it can mean, to the contrary, what it can mean is I can push the envelope even further. Now, everybody knows that's wrong. Everybody knows there's something wrong with that. Now, I'm saying this because with full knowledge that that has been taking place for many, many years in our culture, we want to make sure that we do not swerve so violently from that that we find ourselves across the double lines and all the way to the other side of the road where we're not talking about God's love at all. You follow me? The love of God in this passage is astonishing. I will not get through this message with dry eyes because it is astonishing. I mean, where, prior to this text, where are Mary and Joseph? Where are they at? You say, well, Nazareth. That's right. They're in Nazareth. Now, they can't stay in Nazareth. Why can't they stay in Nazareth? Well, it's because of that passage we read as our call to worship, right? Micah 5.2. Yeah, Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2 says that the Christ has to be born in Bethlehem, right? But they're in Nazareth. Mary is carrying. She's nearing term. They're in Nazareth. God has to get them from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, how does God get them from Nazareth to Bethlehem? God has a million ways, more than an infinite number of ways, to get them from Nazareth to Bethlehem. He could just simply put it on Joseph's heart. You know, eh, Joseph, you know, you're about to have, you know, Mary's about to have a child. You, you guys ought to go up to Bethlehem, you know, to do this one. And, and Joseph would say, you know, sweetie, I think we need to go to Bethlehem. I, I don't know why. I just, I just feel like the Lord's, to my measure of faith, telling me we ought to go to Bethlehem. He could have done that. Could the Lord do that? Absolutely he could do that. But he didn't do that. Look what he did. In, in those days, verse 1, chapter 2, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Who is Caesar Augustus? It's the second emperor of Rome. He's, he is such a powerful man that he was practically deified. He was worshipped as a god, if you will. Uh, when people came into his presence, that was the... That, he, he had so much authority. He was the emperor of the Roman Empire, which was really largely uh, the, the empire of the known world at that time. And we're told that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world, how should we understand that phrase, all the world? All the world should be understood as the Roman Empire, that all the Roman Empire should be registered. In other words, there's a, a census is to be taken uh, for taxation purposes, probably for a number of different purposes. Now, just on the side, verse 2 is a verse where, and I say this, I look around, I'm looking around right now, and I don't even think I need to go into it. I'd go in, let me go into it really briefly, because I don't want it to take away from the steam we've got going out here. But in, in verse number 2, sometimes skeptics of the Scripture will raise the question. Uh, Luke tells us that this was the first registration where Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, I say this for our youngsters who will be entering university one of these days, and that's oftentimes where we'll hear these kinds of things, where they'll point out that Quirinius wasn't, wasn't even in a position to issue this. Uh, uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't in a position of governorship in Syria 
at this time because Jesus was born while Herod was still alive and Herod died in 4 BC. And uh, they don't, you know, with the knowledge that we have of the first century, Quirinius wasn't governor yet at that time. And these kind of statements are made as if we have, like, absolute knowledge of the first century, as if we have absolute knowledge of things that took place 2,000 years ago. Listen, we dig stuff up in the ground. We dig things up in the dirt. How, how, much, how much literature has survived all this time? A lot. We have a lot. But do we have an absolute understanding of the things that we're going to... This, this kind of um, charge is leveled against many of the statements that Luke has made. They were made, especially in the 19th century. Throughout the 19th century, they were made. And with archaeology, with archaeological uh, evidence that was unearthed throughout the 20th century, over and over again, Luke was proved right, and the skeptics were proved wrong. And that's all I want to say about verse 2, because that really would be a sermon in itself, and I want to avoid that pitfall. But if you look at verse 3... In response to the decree that Caesar Augustus is issued, all went to be registered, each to his own town. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed. Now the Lord could have used a whole bunch of ways to get Mary and Joseph into Bethlehem. But look at the way that he used it's magnificent. He moved so easily the heart of the most powerful man in the world at that time to issue a decree in order to accomplish God's promises. Now, why has he done that? So that we here this morning on December 22nd, 2019 could look at this passage and we could say, how much must God love us to demonstrate his providence this way? How much must God love us to show us that even these, these powerful people in these places do his bidding? How much must God love us in order to comfort us this way? Because when we look at the newspapers or we look at the news and we see all the stuff that's going on, we might not understand how God is working in all this stuff. In fact, we don't understand how God is working in all this stuff, but we understand this principle, and we understand that God really, truly is working all these things out according to His purpose in order to what? To bless His church, to bless His children. What incredible love. Here, God is showing us His love and His sovereignty by way of His providence, isn't He? And in the meantime... We are told that Mary gives birth to Jesus in Bethlehem, just as God had promised hundreds of years earlier. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, verse 7, laid him in a manger because there was no place for an inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. The King James translation if I remember right, says they were sore afraid. Is that it? I think that's it. It, it. I will tell you that if it weren't for the reading obstacles, if it weren't for the reading obstacles, I would use the King James translation. If it just was, it's just so hard for a lot of people to read. I would use it. I love it. Can you imagine like Psalm 23, like reciting it? 
like in any translation, but the King James translation. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me, you know. It, it, that's so beautiful. It's just so wonderful. The Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. It's so beautiful. I would use the King James translation. It would be easier for me to memorize that because you hear that all over the place. A lot of the books I use, they, they use it. What messes me up with Bible memorization is I'm always reading in different translations. And it gets me all... And I don't need any help being all... You know what I mean? They were sore afraid. What does it mean to be sore afraid? They are filled with fear like they've never been filled with fear in their lives. This is the most terrifying thing that has ever happened to them. Why? What has happened? What has happened is God has burst forth the realm of heaven and these angels have come through that door. And in coming through that door, just as, just as if you're on a dark night and a door opens of a, in, a, in a house that is lit up, when that door opens up, the light from that house protrudes forward. And in, as these angels break through that realm, as that doorway opens up from the realm of heaven into the realm of earth, the glory of Almighty God, that unapproachable light, shines forth towards these shepherds. And what do they see? They see the unapproachable light of Almighty God is what they see. They see it reflected on the angels, and they see it coming out of heaven. They did not see the Lord Himself, or they would have perished. But they see the light emanating from the Lord, the light of His holiness, the light of His august majesty, the light of His splendor and His beauty, and they are sore afraid. Why? Because of their unholiness. These books that are written about, you know, folks go up and meet God and everything's wonderful and they come back and everything's wonderful. Those are silly books. Those are silly books. Don't spend your time reading that stuff. If you want to read, come and see me and I'll give you some stuff. to. I'll, I'll make some suggestions where you can spend what little time you have of reading. Reading something that can truly nurture your soul. When a fallen sinner comes in the presence of Almighty God like that, an unrepentant fallen sinner... It's face down in the dirt. Because when Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord, what does he do? Someone as holy as Isaiah, much holier than the people that are writing these books. I mean no disrespect to them. But he cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone. Again, quoting the King James translation. For I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. I'm a man of unclean lips. Notice what the angels say to the shepherds. The angels said to them, verse 10, fear not. That's, that's a good message for us this morning too, you know. If you're in Christ Jesus, and this applies only if you're in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ Jesus, you've got good reason to fear. I don't say this. If you're apart from Christ, you've got every reason to be afraid. But if you're in Christ this morning, and you're convicted of the fact that, you know what, I have, I, I have diminished your glory, O Lord. I have diminished your holiness. I have diminished heaven. I am walking in a, a measure of gratitude. Then I can say with you, fear not. For behold, look at the text. Fear not. For behold, here is good news of a great joy that will be for all of the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ, 
the Lord. Fear not, because the Lord has a gift. And this gift involves this child. Who is this child who's been born? He is a savior. What is a savior? A savior is a deliverer. I think one of the one of the finest illustrations we have of that is one I've been using over the last couple of weeks, and that's with Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, chapter 8, verse 2. She is delivered from not one demon, not two demons, but seven demons. She is saved from the oppression of these seven demons. We would probably put it more like she was delivered from the oppression of these seven demons. Had she not had this gift, if the message had not come, fear not, Mary. Fear not, Mary, for behold, I am going to bring you good news. These seven demons that are oppressing you will not always do that because unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Deliverer, who will remove these seven demons from you and save you from all of the sin that you have committed and will commit in your life. That puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Because without the Savior, what would have been Mary Magdalene's fate? Oppressed by seven demons until her organs stop and then an eternity of destruction to follow. We would have never known who Mary Magdalene was. But what a gift we have here. Because we can each put ourselves, even though we might not be oppressed by demonic oppression, still it's been established that we carry with us a lot of unbelief, don't we? How else could our hearts dull? How else could our minds dull? What's causing this dullness? How can we read this passage and not be astonished? It's dimness that is created by unbelief. It's unbelief. Well, fear not, for behold, the angel is bringing us good news. For unto us is born this day in the city of David, a child who is Savior, right? A deliverer, one who will deliver us from all of our sins, deliver us from the unbelief, deliver us from this dimness, this dimness that we would read this and, and not be astonished. But it goes on, and it goes on to say that he is not only a Savior, a deliverer, but he is also Christ. What does that mean to be Christ? Look at Isaiah 61. Keep your place in, in Luke. And look at Isaiah 61, because that's one of the places where it is so, it's just so, uh, so clear what it means to be, to be a Christ. The, the cry English word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which comes from the Hebrew word Messiah. And who is the Messiah? The Messiah is the anointed one. Isaiah 61. The Spirit, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has what? He has anointed me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. There's that good news again. What does this mean? This means that he who has been born in the city of David, who is a Savior, is also one who is anointed by the Holy Spirit without measure, with the graces needed to be able to deliver. That's what this is saying. Look how the rest of it goes. To bring good news to the poor. Are we feeling poor this morning? 
dullness of heart with this passage that we're studying? How can we read this passage and our minds go elsewhere? Oh, we've got a Savior who is Christ and He is anointed to bring good news to the poor. He is sent... He has been sent to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Mary Magdalene imprisoned by seven demons. He has been born to deliver her and he has been anointed to deliver her to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is the year of the Lord's favor? It's the Messianic age. It's the age that we're in right now. We're in the year of the Lord's favor. We're in the... We're in the we're in a time, it's a period of time, it's a limited period of time, but it's a period of time where we can, we can freely embrace Christ Jesus and find forgiveness for our sins. Back to Luke chapter 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, but notice this, he is also the Lord. He's also the Lord. Where is this child right now in our text? Where is he? I mean, in our text. The angels answer in verse 12. He says, this will be a sign for you. You're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Where's the Lord? He's wrapped in swaddling cloths. And he's lying in a cattle trough. Can, can we read that without being astonished at that? C Cody, would you place Linus in a cattle trough? Would any of us place our children in a cattle trough? What is the Lord doing in a cattle trough? He's displaying His love to us. What is this displaying, by the way? What this is displaying is that He has stepped in it with us. He has truly come in and stepped on it. You notice our text doesn't say, and the, uh, go to the palace. Uh, uh, you, you shepherds, we got good news for you. Front to you has been born this day in the city of Rome in a palace. He's, uh, you'll find him in a golden crib currently being coddled by nobles. That's kind of what we'd expect the story to go, isn't it? That's not how it goes. No, you're going to find him in swaddling cloths, in a cattle trough. What is that showing us? It's showing us that the Lord has truly stepped in it with us. By the way, that cattle trough, you put Jesus in the cattle trough, the cattle trough is not going to, in any way, shape, or form, defile Jesus. Jesus makes the cattle trough holy. You follow me? That's a holy cattle trough at that point. Jesus is not defiled by what he touches. He makes what he touches holy. Isn't that astonishing?
How do the angels react to this? Are their hearts cold and dull? No, verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the angels, they go away into heaven. The shepherds say to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing has happened. And in verse 16, they went with haste. Notice they waste no time. They find Mary and Joseph. They find Jesus lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Mary treasured all, all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. There's not a dull heart here, is there? There's not a dull heart here. What do we do with our dull hearts? We apply the gospel to our dull hearts. That's what we do. The first thing that we need to understand is that the Lord himself, what is his attitude towards us with our dull hearts? Let's think about his attitude. Let's think about his attitude when he was with the disciples and they believe. You know the story of them crossing the Sea of Galilee and a storm overtakes them. And these are seasoned fishermen who are used to these storms. But this storm is so violent that they realize, you know what, this, this ship is about to sink. And they, they call on Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? You remember the story? What's he doing? He's on a cushion, asleep. He's asleep. And they wake him up and they say as they're waking him up, don't you care that we're perishing? And what does Jesus say to them? Well, where's your faith, fellas? I mean, does he scold them? He mildly rebukes them. Does he abandon them? No, he dies on the cross for them. I'm saying this because, okay, our hearts are dull this morning. We got that part. By the way, that's the easiest part in preaching. The easiest part in preaching is pointing that stuff out. What is, what is God's disposition about it once we discover it in our hearts? Well, we look to, we look to the Lord. What's his disposition towards the, towards the disciples? It's a disposition of love, is it not? I'm saying this because we can take our cold hearts we can take our lethargic hearts, we can take our dull hearts, and we can say, Lord, this, this, this heart of mine is dull. This heart of mine is it's cold. This heart of mine is, this heart of mine, it, it, something has to be done with it. And you can go to him, and you want to know how he's going to receive you. He's going to receive you warmly. He's going to receive you gratefully. He's going to receive you with grace. He's going to be, it's, this, is going, this is something that is going to be desirous to him. How do I know that? Because if it wasn't his working in you, making you feel this way, you wouldn't even be going to him in the first place. If it wasn't him working in your life, you wouldn't even be hearing this message. Perhaps right now you'd just be getting out of bed. Or who knows what you would be doing. All this is to say, don't try to hide these things. Don't try to hide these things. Don't try to manufacture these things. Don't try, to, don't try to say, well, you know what? My heart is dull. I mean, I see around, looking around me. Everybody's excited. I don't feel excited. I don't feel excited. In fact, I don't even know that I feel like I can really put my full faith into this. Listen, what do you do with that? Go to the Lord. He will in no way cast you out. I, I want to tell you about our Lord. I want to tell you about this, the Savior. He's a savior. He's a, he's a deliverer. 
He's a deliverer. He will not execute you when you go to him and you ask for forgiveness for your cold, unbelieving, contemptuous heart. What will he do? He'll receive you. He'll work in your life. He'll transform you. He, he, he will fill you with joy. Maybe he'll do it quickly. Maybe he'll do it slowly. But I promise you, if you come to him, he will do it. By that, did you feel your heart being warmed by that? Could, could you read the text again? Maybe see some more astonishment in it. If you can just see a little bit more astonishment in it this morning, now, than you would have earlier, then I feel like the work is done. Because sometimes, sometimes, and I think most of the time, the work that God does in our hearts is just these little baby steps, isn't it? If you leave here this morning, you think, you know what? I'm just not floored by this. I should be on the floor by this. Yeah, we should all be on the floor by this. That's good. But if you're astonished at it more now than you were 20 minutes ago, then hey, let's praise God for that. But don't forget about this as you go down the steps. You see, that's where the key is. If you forget about this while you go down the steps and you go out and you get in your car and it's back to business as usual, of diminishing God, diminishing His holiness, diminishing His heaven, walking in ingratitude for what He has done, well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? It's very simple what's going to happen. You will not be astonished by this text. You will not be moved by this text. And it's a dangerous thing to do that, by the way, because there's no guarantee you will hear the gospel again. I mean, for many of you, you're in a habit of coming here. We see you all the time. Yes, we've come to, we're a close family. But the message that we have to give to people is listen, you can't repent anytime you want. You can't repent anytime. Today is the day. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Come to him, ask him to heal. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are a much more magnificent Savior than I've been able to portray in the last 30 minutes. Father, it's, um, it's a great grief. It's a great grief to me, Father, that, that even in the best of sermons that I am capable of preaching, Father, you are still made smaller than you actually are. That you are diminished diminished by my level of perception and diminished by our level of perception. You are much greater than we are able to communicate. But Father, we, we rejoice this morning in the fact that, Father, you, you, you have us in the midst of a program and in the midst of this program, Father, you are working in our lives to be able to see this greater and greater and greater. And we thank you, O oh Father, that you're doing this work in our hearts that maybe perhaps this morning we're finding this more astonishing than we ever have in our lives. No, oh, Father, if anyone is saying that, if anyone is looking at this this morning and saying, wow, I never quite saw this quite as astonishing as it is, I guess it, I guess it is quite astonishing, oh, Father, then we, we feel, Lord, that this is a good morning. But, oh, Father, if we found that our hearts are unmoved this morning, Father, I call on you and I pray if anyone in this room this morning, if their hearts are unmoved by this, oh, Father, I pray that you will work in their hearts. And you will stir them to call on you and to bring those hearts to you. And to say, oh, oh Father, here's my, my contemptuous heart. I'm holding 
I, I, I'm not regarding that which I should regard with my, all my heart, mind, and soul. Oh, Father, I pray you will work in their hearts. And oh, Father, I pray for everyone here this morning, Father. You'll work in our hearts, Father, to, to meditate on this, to work on this, to look at this, oh, Father, and that you would fill our hearts, oh, Father, with astonishment, astonishment, oh, Lord, for what you have done in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.